0: Hi, Andrew Dunkley here. Hope you're well. Fred and I are taking a little bit of a break, but to keep you going until our return, here are some of our choice episodes from 2022 featuring some of the big events in astronomy and space science. Hello, thanks for joining us. This is Space Nuts, the podcast about astronomy and space science, also heard on community radio across Australia. My name is Andrew Dunkley. I am your host. It's great to have your company. Coming up on this particular edition, we will be talking at last about the launch of Artemis 1, which is just fabulous news. And we'll talk about that mission. Uh, On the other side of the coin, uh, some documentary makers have discovered a chunk of the Challenger uh, shuttle in the Atlantic Ocean, which is um, uh, a a sombre reminder of of tragedies past. And astronomers have found a black hole. And if you open your door, there it is. It's fairly close to Earth. Plus, uh, audience questions coming up today about spin launch, the Barnard 68 void and Sagittarius A-star, all on this edition of Space Nuts.
1: 15 seconds. Guidance is internal.
2: 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, five 4, 3, 2, 1.
0: Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining me as always is his good self, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred.
3: Hi, Andrew. How are you doing this morning? I'm well, sir. How are you? Mm. Very happy with the uh, launch of Artemis One, oh, isn't it? Fabulous news. We'll get yeah.
0: to that shortly. But uh, yeah. yeah, I'm over my jet lag. I'm over my second dose of COVID. Ah, um, oh gosh, mostly, mostly hundred percent. I got something to show you before we get started. Um, for people who watch us on YouTube, this will um, this will be easily seen. But uh, I'm going to show you a rock. See that? I can see it. Yes, and that is it, a piece of lava. It's black. Yeah, Mount Etna. Yeah. So when we were up on Mount Etna a few weeks ago, they said, take as much as you like, we don't care. So I did. (laughs) So that's a piece of Mount Etna. I generally try to collect a piece of volcanic rock wherever I visit a volcano. Hmm. Uh, That's Mount Etna, but this one is also Mount Etna. I didn't know this about Mount Etna, but it it blasts out two different coloured lavas, one black and one red.
3: They look as though they've got different
0: textures yeah, as well. This one's much um, heavier. Um, ah, this okay. has got a lot of, um, uh, like gases have come out of it and it's very porous. Yeah. This one too, yeah. but it feels much more dense. They're almost the same size, if I can put them up. Yeah, but, but, um, such a colour contrast there. Yeah, it's, it's quite amazing. And it's it's all over the mountain. You can just see... Patches of red and then patches of black. They they seem to fall in different areas, but they're all kind of intermingled as well. But yeah, I'm very very happy to have a piece of Mount Hedna.
3: Um you, you must have um, you you visited Hawaii, Andrew. Yeah. and you're probably aware of the two different sorts of lava that there are there. Um, there's there's I can't remember the exact names. One is aa, and I think one's pu'u. Or something oh, like that, right. um, and and they're very different in consist- consistency. Uh ah is sharp and sprinkly, uh, sharp and um, uh, not sprinkly. It's just it's just just sharp, <laughs> uh, and uh, people say pointy. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, uh, local Hawaiians say it's called a because that's what you say when you stand on it. <laughs> um, but but uh, but they are the same color though. They're different in texture, but right. unlike those two that you've held up, they're the same color. Yeah, but. Um, Anyway, yeah. Just- now, uh, Etna was um, having a
0: quiet smoke in the corner while we were there, <laughs> but uh, it had erupted two months earlier. Yeah. Yeah. So there's and, plenty of fresh lava Gee, around. there were some great stories that the, um, the guide told us about it. Um, one of the big eruptions um, a couple of years ago uh, sent lava down the mountain and, and it threatened one of the two villages that are actually mm-hmm. built on the slopes of Mount Etna, and one bloke who uh, owned a vineyard Um, had to evacuate so before he left he put a table out in the backyard and put a bottle of wine and some food on the table to offer Mount Etna and said you can have this if you stop anyway when the eruption stopped and he went back the bottle of wine and the food was still there and the lava had stopped at his fence yeah (laughs) true story yeah, Lovely. quite amazing. love it. Yeah. yeah, I love it. That bottle of wine's in a museum now, I think. I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway, we've been no, yeah.
3: Yeah, we've been on the with same it. god the same god that it's Pele, isn't it, who's the yeah. the, the, the god of these volcanoes. So, yes. Indeed. Probably,
0: yes. Uh, I also saw um well, I didn't see it. We passed it. I had to look for it. It was too dark. Mount Stromboli, which is in the middle of the Mediterranean, uh-huh. oh, yeah. and I uh, saw Mount Vesuvius as well when we visited Pompeii. It's not active. It hasn't erupted since 1944, but um, it will again one day, they reckon. Uh, And uh, I wouldn't want to be in Naples when that happens.
1: No. Uh,
0: Right. Okay. Uh, Let's get down to business and some exciting news at last that uh, finally, after uh, weather delays and technical problems and um, somebody forgetting to put the cat out, they have finally
3: launched Artemis 1, Fred. Indeed, they have the the, the trial run for the first um, return of humans to the moon. Artemis 2 will send a human crew on more or less the same trajectory that Artemis 1's going on. It put put them in orbit around the moon. And Artemis 3, we hope, will be a lunar landing, perhaps Mm. by 2025 or so. But yeah, Artemis 1, a dress rehearsal for, for human flights returning to the moon. It it blasted off at um five forty seven p.m our time here in sydney uh sorry here in uh, new south wales uh and uh with um uh, yeah all the spectacular uh and you know hold your breath stuff that we're used to when we watch rocket launches yeah and there was actually a hold up there was a, a hold again because of uh uh, suspected hydrogen leak. Uh, there were some engineers went and talked up one of the joints with their spanners, uh, which I think stopped the leak. Uh, there was a an Ethernet connection, which was also a bit faulty. So that they put short holds into the countdown. But uh, yeah, 5.47 hour time whatever time that is in the rest of the world uh, it uh, it was fantastic I, um, I I watched all afternoon but I had to go uh, into the ABC studio at uh, the, the critical time right? Uh, so I, I couldn't watch the video but I, when I left the studio and I was driving home I had it playing uh, in the car radio I wasn't watching of course but uh, the audio was coming through uh, and the lift off was just as I was crossing the Sydney Harbour Bridge it was a, an Epic moment! There was a rainbow in the background, Andrew. It was all there. It was fabulous stuff. Yeah, it uh, was six forty-seven
0: Greenwich Mean Time. That's right. One forty-seven local time, AM, I think, and seven forty-seven CET. I'm just trying to remember what that stands for, but anyway. Um, Yeah, it's a twenty-five day mission. This one.
3: Yes, that's right. So at the moment, the status is that uh, the, the launch sequence went perfectly. Uh, all the stuff that it had to do, uh, you know, having uh, attained space, the boosters blowing away, the uh, the emergency abort rocket being jettisoned, uh, lots of fairings being jettisoned, then uh, the core section of the uh, of the SLS, the Space Launch System. Rocket uh, falling away, and uh, unlike the Falcon nines which we're used to seeing returning uh, to be reused, this one's ditched in the Atlantic Ocean with its four RS twenty five engines. Mm. Great shame, but never mind. But everything else then uh, went according to plan, and the uh, the Translunar translunar injection that's the bit where they squirt the rocket to put it on a path to the moon that was perfectly flawless i think about 7 hours after the after the launch and now i believe it's it may have had a mid mid course burn already but we've got a th- uh, 6 day uh is that right 3 to 5 days of coasting to the moon uh, before it goes into this really wide retrograde orbit, going the wrong way around the moon, yeah, uh, which is a really interesting manoeuvre. It's, it's. I think it'll be in orbit around the moon for more than 10 days, and as you said, uh, comes back on, I believe, scheduled for the 11th of December. That's what, that's what I heard. I also yeah. heard it's actually going to go 40,000 miles past the moon, is that Yeah, right? that's right. 60,000 kilometres beyond the Moon. It's a a wide, wide orbit uh, that's been put in. And I think it's just to test out all the systems thoroughly. Uh, It will, uh, 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 in fact, at the end of this initial sequence, it will come within 97 kilometres of the lunar surface, and it's going to pick up a slingshot there, which Mm. will put it in this extended orbit that takes it well beyond the Moon. Fantastic. So it's you know um fanta- vintage nasa stuff it's great to see them uh going to the moon again i uh, i'm very thrilled about that yeah and a new generation get to ex- gets to experience exactly. that like i exactly. did
0: when i was 7 yeah. years old and they set foot on the moon i was so thrilled and uh it, it kind of waned after a few years but i think that excitement is back now and uh so many experiments on board there's a lot of science being uh, tested as a part of this project, so uh, it's not just about testing the the hardware, and um, oh, that's right. And looking forward to other missions and putting a base on the moon. Ultimately, but there's a, a lot more going on. There's Cube Sats on there being tested, yep. all sorts of stuff. So uh, there's there's plenty happening with Artemis One, and we'll keep you up uh, up to date as we get news from NASA. Now, uh, to something uh, much more sobering and a reminder of how things can go dreadfully wrong and the Challenger shuttle disaster is in the news again, but uh, this time it's because of a film crew that was out um, in the Atlantic uh, doing a a documentary about the Bermuda Triangle of all things, and they've stumbled across a piece of the Challenger
3: yeah it's uh, it's a remarkable story exactly as you said they uh this film crew's documentary series uh on the B- the bermuda triangle which has always had this curious uh um attraction about it because people think it's it swallows up uh, ships mm. and i've been in and... it
0: i was on a Have ship you? in the bermuda triangle um oh. some years ago yeah could explain a lot
3: really uh, <laughs> i think my brain got lost yeah no, no. <laughs> Um, Anyway, uh, hunting down on the seabed, they're actually looking for the wreckage of a World War II aircraft, I Mm. understand. And they came across this large, large area, partly covered by sand, uh, which had curious square tiles on it. Um, I did watch a clip from the footage that was filmed. It's a few days ago now, but uh, I think this was when they actually originally found this, and... Um, there are two two divers there, and there's obviously a third one with a camera, uh, uh, sort of cr- crawling over this area and looking at it and jiggling about the t- with the tiles and things of that sort. Yeah. and And there's a bit of audio on it, and the final comment in the clip I saw was, uh, I think we better talk to NASA about this. And yeah. So they obviously realized what it was. Uh, and yes, now NASA's been involved. I think that was quite some time ago when all that happened. Mm. Uh, and it is indeed part of the Challenger space shuttle, which was lost on the 28th of January. Uh, 1986 and I like you may do I remember exactly what I was doing and where I was when I heard that news it was devastating.
0: I was getting in my car and uh, the radio came on and and I heard it and it reminded me of a conversation I had with my sister-in-law only a couple of weeks before and we were talking about the space shuttle program I said gee I'm I'm really worried they seem to be pretty gung-ho about it and that's usually when something horrible happens, and I, I could not wow. believe. What that a prescient those,
3: thing to say! Yeah, two weeks yeah. before it happened. Yeah, um, and yeah, yeah, I didn't feel good at all. I must confess. I, I, I'm sure you didn't. No, I didn't either. I I, I was in and then, uh, working at the UK Schmidt Telescope, and I was in my kitchen uh, in the morning and heard the news. And we we were we were sort of uh, in the world of astronomy, pretty attached to the shuttle program in the sense that uh it was the only vehicle that could launch the space telescope what's now called the hubble space telescope it was then just called the space telescope yeah uh, and that was more or less ready to go uh when that disaster happened in fact i think it was scheduled for that year uh and of course that uh you know that Stymied that, of course, and uh, it wasn't until 1990 that the, the Hubble Space Telescope was finally launched. So mm. it 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 played into all kinds of different aspects of the scientific world, but of course, the human tragedy was by far the, the most over, overwhelming part of it. Oh, Was awesome. the first the first civilian on board, uh, yeah. uh, the teacher, uh, mm. and and I I just can't
0: imagine. What her students must have felt. They would have yeah. been watching that. And oh, yeah. uh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just was, it was devastating. And um, you just didn't know what to think. You just, I didn't see it live. I saw the footage later, but um, yes. oh my yeah. gosh. It was, it was yep. horrific. Yep. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I guess they'll recover that if they haven't already. And um, yeah. it'll, it'll become part
3: of NASA's, um, um, i don 't know what they 'll do with it to be honest there is but, a there is a collection as um, i can 't remember where it is it 's in uh, some warehouse belonging to NASA at one of their sites, uh, which is all the uh, all the remnants of the of the Challenger spacecraft okay, uh, okay. for the record,
0: the documentary makers are doing a six part series called the Bermuda Triangle Intercursed Waters and it premieres on november twenty second on the History channel in the United States so look out for that. Uh, This is Space Nuts. You're with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. And as we're into a new year, Nord is kicking off 2023 with a brand new deal, 63% off NordVPN. And uh, Judy and I have just come back from overseas, and we uh, had a lot of situations where we were using public Wi Fi over in New Zealand, uh, which is everywhere. And once again, I felt fairly safe because uh, I was using uh, VPN to protect me from anybody who might try to get into my personal information banking information email systems password system systems whatever it was uh they couldn't get to it because i was using nord vpn now uh the 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 deal for the new year exclusive to space nuts listeners uh is fabulous now what they are offering is uh different levels of plan over different terms You can go month by month, although that costs you a bit more. You can have a one-year plan or a two-year plan, and there are three tiers within each of those plans. Now, the most popular is the basic service, which is uh, giving you the high-speed VPN, malware protection, and tracker and ad blocker software. But if you go to tier two, uh, it gives you just a little bit more, including the uh, cross-platform password manager and a data breach scanner, but if you go with the the top tier plan, you get the whole bang lot, including one terabyte of encrypted cloud storage. And who doesn't need that these days? So there it is. And it is uh, guaranteed. There's a 30-day money back guarantee on uh, NordVPN and all its services. So there is no risk in signing up for this service through our sponsor, NordVPN. Now, the URL you need uh, is fairly simple, uh, nordvpn.com slash space nuts. That's nordvpn.com slash space nuts, and then just click get the deal and find the, the system that works best for you. That's nordvpn.com slash space nuts. Now, back to the show.
1: Roger, you're allowed Space nuts. Uh,
0: now, Fred, to another discovery, uh, not on the ocean floor but in space and not that far away, uh, we are talking about a black hole. Now, a lot of people probably think that the nearest black hole to us would be Sagittarius 8 star, which we'll be talking about later, but um, no, this is this is one they've only just discovered because it was hiding and lurking and it's uh,
3: it's not that far away really. Uh, As the crow flies? No, it's not. Um, 1,600 light years away. Mm. It's actually uh, the the nearest one before that was about three times that distance away. Um, And it's one that was discovered by the normal way of finding black holes. It's a thing called an X-ray binary, uh, which is where you have a star, in orbit around a black hole, and the star, the black hole is poaching material off the star, which is forming an accretion disk around the black hole as it gets sucked into it, uh, and that accretion disk, uh, basically the material is rocketed up to very high temperatures because of the friction, and you get X-rays coming from it. So that's the standard way of discovering what we call stellar mass black holes, black holes about the, the, the mass of the sun or 10 or up. 20 times the mass of the sun. Uh, Supermassive black holes in the centres of galaxies are a different beast. Um, They're also usually discovered by their emissions, Uh, but uh, as we we will talk about a bit later about Sagittarius A star, they're they're found in different ways. But stellar mass black holes are usually found because they're part of an X-ray emitting object. But this one isn't, and that's what makes it really... Uh, A very impressive discovery. And it's actually a group, um, I think we might have talked about them before. It's led by a scientist called Karim El-Baudry, who's at the Center for Astrophysics, uh, uh, Harvard-Smithsonian. And um, I think they call themselves the Black Hole Police or something like that, (laughs) because they they, they go around debunking Potential candidates of black holes. They, right. you know, they demonstrate. No, this cannot possibly be a black hole, and I think they've done that several times. But this time, they have found one that won't be debunked um, because it's uh, it is a genuine black hole. So, what what have they done? Well, they've studied. Data from the Gaia spacecraft and Gaia you will remember i 'm sure is it 's actually at the l two point not very far from where the james Webb Space Telescope is uh, and it, it is an astrometric satellite, which means it measures very accurately the positions of stars sort of on the sky their their coordinates on the sky, and it measures them so accurately that you can track a star moving uh over time stars move pretty fast but they're so far away that movement is very small when we see it uh you know from earth and it, that's why the constellations uh that we look at in the sky now are pretty well the same as the the ancient greeks looked at and and our forebears here in in australia so um they, they appear to move very slowly uh, and that means that you need ultra-precise measurements in order to detect that motion. And the Gaia spacecraft can do that. It's phenomenal, the accuracy that it generates. So it it detected the motion of this particular star, but then uh, the measurements were so fine that they could recognise, the scientists could recognise, that there were irregularities in that motion. Uh, In other words, a, a kind of wiggle as the star was moving along. Something was toying with it. Yes, that's toying with it is a good word. Huh. Uh, this it's a bit more, a, a little bit less playful than that. Yes, yeah. uh, in that uh, what they meant like, was more like rabid dog playful. <laughs> yeah, actually, <laughs> when it's a black hole, I think you're right. Uh, what they detected though was that this star was in orbit around something, um, and they confirmed that by measurements made with the Gemini North telescope in Hawaii. Uh The uh, 8-metre uh, northern uh, component of the twin Gemini telescopes, or Gemini if you want to uh, put the curly bit on the end, uh, operated by the National Science Foundation's NOIR Lab, uh, National Optical Infrared Laboratory, uh, that, uh, those measurements proved beyond doubt that this star was in orbit around something <clears throat> and the only thing that it could be in orbit around, because there's, it looks as though it's in orbit around nothing, um, with the, given the dimensions and the velocities and things of that sort, is a black hole with yeah. a, a mass of about 10 times the mass of the sun, and what we might call a quiescent black hole, because it's not actually got an accretion disk pa- uh, pumping out X-rays, which, as I said, is the normal way of discovering them. Yeah. Um, and the, 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 the discoverers, El uh, uh, Badri and his, his colleagues... Uh, they've got a very nice um, description of what this system is like. Uh, uh, Karim El-Badri says, uh, take the solar system, put a black hole where the sun is, And the sun where the Earth is, and you get this system. Ah. Uh, So it's uh, you know, so the separation between the two is pretty well the same as the separation between the Earth and the Sun. Uh, Very nice way to envisage it, and uh, this I think is a really uh, excellent discovery. Um, The, uh, in fact, uh, I'll I'll read another. Comment from him, another quote, because it relates to that um black hole police thing I was telling you about. Yep. Uh, he said, While there have been many claimed detections of systems like this, almost all these discoveries have subsequently been refuted. This is the first unambiguous detection of a sun like star in a wide orbit around a stellar mass black hole in our galaxy. Mm. So, really, very, very nice work. Uh, and uh, I think it's. Uh, you know, it's such a a, a a great way to discover black holes. And it, what it suggests is that there's a huge number of black holes that we haven't yet discovered, uh, which are quiescent. They're not emitting x-rays. And we perhaps yet, as yet don't have the sensitivity of our equipment to detect them. But you can bet your life that more will turn up.
1: Yeah,
0: and they're, they're also very hungry, as I believe.
3: I think I've read this one. Hole. This one's got a bit of a, you know... A lunchtime a thing going time. on. <laughs> Probably. Most of yeah. them do, but it's not enough to, to make the x-rays that would mm. would reveal it. That's yeah. fascinating.
0: Well, that's quite a discovery and uh, you can read about that on uh, Astronomy Daily because that story popped up uh, on the Space Nuts website too, so check it out there. Very good. Yeah. I, I was going to save this to the end, but I think I'll do it now because this relates to black holes. Uh, it's, a, it's a question from Annette in Manchester.
2: Hi, my name's Annette and I'm from Manchester in the United Kingdom. My question's about the image that was taken of a supermassive black hole that's in the centre of our galaxy, Sagittarius A star. So I heard somebody say that it looks as though, because of the orientation of the accretion disk that potentially our black hole had had, or our galaxy at least, had, had a collision with another galaxy previously. So does that explain then that why our star is a bit of a loner? Because I believe there's no other stars around our star, the sun, that are of similar uh, origin or certainly makeup whereas stars are usually formed in clusters so could that explain why our sun is a little bit of a loner
0: mm, that's a great question Annette. thanks for sending that in and um
3: yeah that's a, that's a good theory love your thinking annette it's mm. uh it's um uh, you know it's a lovely um pulling together of two different things and and absolutely that uh the thing about the you know the modeling of the Sagittarius A black hole a star black hole event horizon observations made with the event horizon telescope the modeling worked best when exactly as Annette says the accretion disk is more or less at right angles to the plane of the galaxy uh, and that's a bit counterintuitive because uh, it's not the way these things normally work and and i think um uh, a, a, an accretion of another black hole Uh, by the Sagittarius A star black hole at some time in the history of the galaxy is a a likely explanation for that. In other words, a collision between two galaxies. And we know our galaxy is already, uh, well, it's still chomping up uh, smaller galaxies. The two Magellanic clouds that we see here in the Southern Hemisphere are definitely on a a, a, a sort of dying trajectory to become part of the uh, halo of the Milky Way itself. Um, So... To link that, though, to uh, a lonely sun, um, I I think it might be a bit of a uh, drawing a long bow. Uh, The sun is not that lonely in regard to its particular type. Um, I'm trying to remember, because I did some work years ago, about the you know the population of stars in the sun's neighborhood and what category they are yeah uh, and and the sun's neighborhood is is not particularly empty it's pretty standard our nearest star being um being alpha centauri uh, or the Alpha Centauri system, because it's got multiple components only four uh, light years away, mm. um, I, I got some average numbers. And I can't remember what they are. They're in um, my book, Wise Uranus Upside Down, about the average density of stars in the sun's vicinity. And it's pretty typical uh, of the rest of the galaxy when you think about stars within the what disk. What page capacity. is it on, Fred? <laughs> I've got the book in my hand. Have you? Yeah. I can't remember. Uh, it is there. So I think it's in the chapter on. Um, it's in the chapter on uh, stars, <laughs> as you'd expect. Um, I'm not going to bother looking. No. <laughs> I'll let you do it for me. Um, it anyway. The uh, the 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 bottom line is. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the other thing to say. Is that most of the stars in the sun's neighborhood are red dwarfs uh, and that's true throughout the galaxy they are they're they're just these cool dwarf stars red dwarf stars uh, and sun like stars are not they're not certainly not as common as red dwarfs, but they are um nevertheless not that rare either <laughs> so uh, have you found it? You... No, I'm, I'm... <laughs> no, I wouldn't bother. Okay, it was, it was about. Um, it's, I think it was in answer to one of the questions, actually, because Why is Uranus upside down? Is a book of questions that was asked on ABC Radio, mm. and it, it's the answer to one of those, which I think was something like, "How many stars are there in the Sun's neighborhood?" or something like that. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> we'll get to it one day. So, Annette, um, I like you thinking. I'm not quite sure that you can make that link, though. So uh the sun is not as
0: lonely as Annette might think it is.
3: Uh no, um okay. it's um, More isolated it's, I suppose is what she it, was getting. Get. Well, I mean she makes the point, you know, it's it's a of a particular class a, a, a G5 dwarf star which is what they what the sun is yeah uh it's not that rare a, a species and not that rare in our neighborhood either okay. but nowhere near as common as red dwarf stars the mm. M dwarf stars yeah, well. everywhere
0: they're in they're peoples. everywhere
3: oh, they're in, in tenorpen now they're in people's gardens <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 no. They're, they're, they're China dwarfs or porcelain dwarfs or something like <laughs> yeah, that. Something like that. Not red ones. <laughs> not made of hydrogen and helium. No, that's
0: right. Not mm. usually. Okay. Uh, thanks, Annette. Uh, it was great to hear from you. This is yeah. Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and keying with
3: a go. Space Nuts.
0: Uh, we will continue with uh, questions, Fred, because we've got a, a, a couple,
1: and this one comes uh, from Ralph. Hello, Andrew and Dr. Watson. Ralph in Northern California here. I had the opportunity recently to tour the National Atomic Testing Museum in Las Vegas. Very fascinating. And they I came across a display called NERVA, N-E-R-V-A, which was a nuclear engine testing program. Back in the 60s, it said they had about 14 successful test events. and I'm curious to know whatever happened to that program or if nuclear engines are still on the whiteboard. Secondly, I just read the article about Spin Launch and their success with launching small satellites into near low Earth orbit and their success with partnering with NASA and their plans to have a much larger device going by 2026 to indeed reach low Earth orbit with minimal propellant. Um, pretty bizarre contraption. This mechanical arm goes around at 5,000 miles per hour to generate enough uh, centrifugal force, I guess, to launch the objects uh, up. <laughs> To, <laughs> pretty crazy. I'm wondering if that could be used on the moon with a lesser gravity. I remember during the Cosmos series, they were talking about electromagnetic mass drivers on the moon. Carl Sagan was interested and excited about that. Anyway, keep up the good work as always. Love the Space Nuts show and goodbye.
0: Okay. Uh, thanks, Ralph. Um, now, I, I'm not sure there's much we can say about uh, nuclear engines, but it is a
3: fascinating idea. Uh it, it it is um and it's not entirely dead either um so the nerva program uh, uh ex- exactly as ralph says uh it ran for 20 years the program so uh the us uh atomic energy commission and nasa uh and there was an office called the space nuclear propulsion office they they really uh set a great sight on the idea of nuclear propelled uh, spacecraft uh, apparently the program wound up uh, in january 1973 um, it, my understanding of nuclear uh, rocket engines is that you you essentially use the nuclear energy to uh, to accelerate something else uh, as the propulsive mechanism uh, i'm not actually sure how nerva worked um because i've never really looked at the uh at, at the device itself um, but it, it actually, you know, when you look at it, uh, with the benefit of, of hindsight, it actually looks pretty neat, this device. Yeah. Uh, and if you can get over the, uh, the nervousness, oh, that's a terrible pun, uh, the nervousness of putting nuclear reactors into space, uh, then maybe you've got a, a way of, uh, a, a way of using it. Uh, my guess is, uh, you know, based on on modern ideas about propulsion and modern sensitivities about risking a disaster on a launch pad with a nuclear reactor involved, uh, my guess is that the the whole idea has been superseded by the idea of iron motors uh, which um, use electrical charge to accelerate something like xenon as a propulsive thing these are well, tried and tested. They're, mm. they're low thrust, uh, but they are nevertheless things that will provide an acceleration, a low acceleration for a very long period of time. And, of course, uh, in space, if you use solar panels, you get your electricity for free. Yes. Uh, and all you've got to provide is that propulsive uh, uh, material.
0: That, that but, said, yeah. uh, several of our governments in Australia have found a way of not making electricity free through solar panels. <laughs> well,
3: yes, that's, cor- that's quite correct, yes. <laughs> um, it, it, so I, I, th- I do think nuclear propulsion... Uh, If not dead, it's certainly dormant. Yeah. And I I, I, I mean, I remember uh, in the fifties when you know I avidly was reading all the science and science fiction stuff in the late fifties and early sixties when I was still at school. um, We thought nuclear was the way to go in terms of well, not just domestic power supply. Everybody thought we'd have nuclear power stations everywhere by the end of uh, the century. But we also thought in space it would be the way to send. Vehicles um, around, touring around the solar system. Uh, I I guess Three Mile Island and Chernobyl put a stop to all those enthusiastic uh, ideas Mm. uh, to a large extent. Um, So, yes, as I said, Perhaps a dormant idea, if not uh, altogether deceased. Now, the spin launch. Yeah, um, this is fascinating. I've actually yeah. looked into this before. I, I was made aware of it some
0: time ago and um, and did some reading on it. it. It's it's the most bizarre contraption
3: you've ever seen. Yeah. But, <laughs> I wish you'd to, I wish you'd told me, Andrew, because I'd never heard of it. <laughs> oh wow! It, it, it's yeah. um,
0: it's it's just it's a way of launching. Um, Space vehicles unmanned, I don't think you could survive the launch of this, to be honest. Uh, into low Earth orbit, and you don't really hit the accelerator, um, fuel wise until you're um, at quite an altitude. It's just like chucking a rock into space, but you're doing it at like 5,000 revs
3: or something. It's just amazing, yeah. So, yes, I've, I've in the time that since you mentioned it, I've researched it too, (laughs) and uh, uh, it is, it's a remarkable. A uh, really quite remarkable technology. Um, the the plan for uh, and Spin Spin launch of of course is a company. Spin Launch Inc. Uh, based in, in, at Long Beach in California. They uh, are working to to build a a working device, uh, a a mass mass accelerator that could send something up to. Maybe 60 kilometers just by um, whizzing it around the, 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 the spinner, uh, where you could ignite a rocket to, to get you up to orbital speed if you're doing it from Earth. But Ralph's question about whether you could do it from the moon is a great one yeah. because uh, I note that the plans that Spin Launch have is to uh, accelerate the thing by the spin up to something over two kilometers per second. And well, What's the escape velocity of the moon two point three eight kilometers per second Wow, uh, so yeah, you've got an interesting uh, nexus there, an interesting parallel between the two a uh, very interesting thing to highlight, Ralph, and I uh, really like your thinking on that. Mm. Uh, so that it sounds like it's got a lot of potential it does indeed it's yeah. got a lot of spin going for it as well, so
0: although they are talking about you know building a a place on the moon to harvest. The, the water and make yes. rocket fuel Rocket
3: fuel, so, that's right. there's but several you're gonna, options you're going to need that anyway so yeah that's for sure uh, yeah yeah mm. but um, yeah remarkable and yeah sorry andrew go ahead
0: well i was just going to say uh, for people who haven't seen it and you can look it up online but it, it kind of looks like a um, um a satellite dish sitting on its edge with a
3: Chimney stuck out the side. <laughs> that would be the way to describe it. Um, that I've just brought up a picture, and you're right. Mm-hmm. Um, the ch- the chimney only needs smoke coming out, and it's the real thing. It's even got a lid on it. What yep. an extraordinary device! It is Isn't that remarkable. Yeah, and uh, wow. designed to fire little satellites into low Earth orbit. Well, that's right. Yes, and and if you can give it two kilometres per second. Uh, Actually, if you do it the right way and you do it on the equator, you get an, an extra half kilometer per second from the Earth's rotation. So you're you're yeah. well on your way. Fantastic! It's, yes, remarkable. Stuff. I
0: dare say we're going to hear more about spin launch in the future.
3: Uh,
0: and thanks so, for your question, Ralph. Hope all is well in Northern California. Uh, and now we head over to Reno.
1: Hi, uh, this is Phil in Reno, long-time listener. My question is, um, what do you think about the Bernard 68 void, this huge region of the universe where there's uh, almost nothing? Uh, any theories for uh, what caused that? It seems to um, be too much of an anomaly to be just uh, a random um uh, void in the universe. Thanks a lot.
0: Mm. Um, Yeah, it's an interesting situation, Phil, and uh, I'm sure Fred has the answer. I I actually um, have a theory. Uh, I mean, there's practically nothing there, as Phil said, but uh, could it be just like a a part of the universe? It's like the the doldrums on Earth where there's just this dead zone in the ocean where there's nothing happening
3: most of the time. Is that a possibility? Um, it's a lovely idea, Andrew No good But I think the, the reality is far more prosaic than, than okay. any of that um, I tried Oh, look, you've done a grand job And of course, the, you know uh, I wish my teachers were so eloquent about my <laughs> failures <laughs> It's not a failure It's a, It's a great suggestion And when you look at an image of Barnard 68, that's exactly what you think. It's a hole in space. Mm. You've got the Milky Way um, radiant in all its glory uh, with this black hole in it and nothing beyond. It looks like a half moon. It does, that's right, slightly crescent-shaped. But um, the the, the bottom line is uh, it's not a hole in anything. It's something dark in the way. Yeah, I was about Uh, to suggest that. Yeah. So yeah. So it's in fact a thing that we call a, a Bok globul- a blo- a globule, named after Bart Bok, very well-known astronomer, former director of the uh, Mount Stromlo Observatory here in Australia. A Bok globule is a very dense cloud of molecules and dust, um, and it's the sort of you know that it's the raw materials it's where stars are formed uh, uh many of them we see lit up by young stars for think of the pillars of creation you know in the uh, mm. eagle nebula um they are they're basically dark dust clouds but they're they're illuminated because they've got young stars in them um barnard 68 is just a cold cloud of dust uh, which hasn't it hasn't kicked off any kind of star formation. Um, it's very close. Uh, and that is probably why it looks so impressive because there are no foreground stars in front of it. If there was a star in front of it, then it wouldn't have this eerie, uh, empty appearance. Mm. Um, it's 500 light years away. And, and actually, um, you know, that relates back to Annette's question about the density of stars in the local universe or the local galaxy so this thing 500 light years away along its line of sight there isn't a star that that uh, can be seen uh, superimposed in front of it and that gives it this as i said the impression of being a, a hole but it is a dark nebula it's a dark uh, cloud a fairly standard one um infrared measurements actually let you see through it. I was about um, to ask if James Webb would be able to see through it. Yeah, it would be great to see a James Webb image of this uh, of this object, and I'm sure we will, probably before not too long because they're coming thick and fast, the, sure the images from the web. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, that will definitely show background stars. Um, You know, there's a note in, for example, on Wikipedia that says about a thousand of them uh, are visible at uh, at infrared wavelengths. Um, It's it is uh, an an interesting object, uh, but it's not it's not a hole in space. It it is simply a dark nebula. Uh, Very interesting to surmise what it might be like in. Uh, in a few billion years' time, maybe it will kick off star formation and we 'll start seeing some brightness in it, yeah you, never if you know. and I are still
0: around then all right there you go phil um an actual explanation from Fred on what happened and what the uh barnard sixty eight void is it 's not a void at all it 's just a blob a blob <laughs> it's a blob. <laughs> all right uh, thanks phil lovely to hear from you and don't forget if you've got questions for us jump on our website spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. click on the ama link and you can send us uh, questions through there, text or audio or click on the send us your audio question on the right hand side of our homepage. and while you're visiting the website you can uh, go to the astronomy daily tab and catch up on all the uh, news as it rolls out it's updated very regularly and visit the Space Nuts shop, you might be able to get a copy of this. You never know. Why is Uranus upside down? Because I was on the other side of the world and the toilets are different there. No, I don't know. (laughs) Um, Gee that was low. Anyway, um, if you uh, would like to visit um, Astronomy Daily as well, there's a new uh, website that you can visit, astronomydaily.io, which will take you straight to the astronomy news that we do on the Astronomy Daily and Space Nuts podcasts. Fred, that's uh, just about it. Thank you so much. Great to see you again.
3: Yes, you too. and um, Good to have you back in the country as well. It's uh, where we can keep an eye on you. Especially. Yes,
0: yes. It's good to be back. I don't know how long I'll be back. Judy's got all these trips planned for us now that oh, there you go. she's retired, even though I don't want to retire full time. But um, she's, she's no, you've got to take time off. We're going here, we're going there, we're going everywhere. Anyway, uh, I think I've got my feet back on the ground for a little while now. Fred, we'll catch you next week. Thank you. Sounds great. Take care, Andrew. You too. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts, and thanks to Hugh in the studio who's um, chewing on gum, I think, is what he's doing at the moment. Uh, And uh, until next time, from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts, you'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com.
2: This has been another quality podcast production
1: from Bytes.com.